Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 329 and my conversation with longtime percussionist, educator, and a creator of Grover Pro Percussion, Neil Grover. And let's get right to it. Neil was on my mind to have on the podcast, mostly because he was presenting for the fourth time at PASIC this past year in 2022 with a session on accessory percussion playing. For anyone that has been in the percussion world for a long time, you should know the name Neil Grover. Not only was he a longtime percussionist with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, but he was the owner and creator of Grover Pro Percussion, a company that specialized in, at first, triangles and tambourines, but would later branch out to other percussion instruments. Neil recently sold the company to RBI Music, but maintains an important role with the company, while he still performs, teaches, and takes on the role of music director in various situations. I really enjoyed his session at PASIC this year. He demonstrated a number of techniques, took a lot of questions, and played a lot of classic orchestral excerpts for the session. It was great to meet him in person there and on Zoom right here. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom, primarily on October 20th, 2022, with an additional section recorded on January 24th, 2023, and it begins right now. All right, so Neil, tell me what you are presenting at PASIC this year and when you are presenting. The title of my presentation are Percussion Accessories, Not As Easy As You Think. It is going to be a very short synopsis of kind of really my life's focus in terms of percussion on percussion accessories and trying to elevate not only conception of how important they are, but also techniques and concepts. So we feel good as percussionists playing uh, anything, whether it's snare drum, as well as triangle. The triangle is important, just as important. Do you know how many times you've presented at PASIC at this point? Um, I presented at PASIC four other times. Okay. But I've done between master classes and clinics and Texas Music Educators Midwest. I mean, I did a lot. I used to do a lot of um, traveling, doing clinics with in cooperation with the Zildjian Company. Um, I've done a couple of hundred of those over the years in Europe or Japan throughout the U.S. And I, I've, I've always, but I enjoy doing it. I still enjoy, I, I enjoy that kind of uh, collegial atmosphere and at, at getting together uh, with a like-minded people who, who have a passion for the same things that I do. Yeah. Well, I'm curious at this point when you are presenting something like you are, and I obviously things that you have talked about, thought about for, for, for a long time. Do you come in preparing for something like this with like new information? Like, how do you think about, how are you taking in new things and trying to kind of. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. You know, over the last number of years, there's been a lot of changes and elevation in terms of accessory playing and generally in percussion playing. I mean, what I played to get into college, you know, you'd expect the kid in, starting high school to play today but i do incorporate i see 
I, I love it when I'm on YouTube or at a clinic or a performance, I see young percussionists taking some of the techniques that I've been espousing, you know, over the last 40 years and taking them to the next level. So then I come home and I practice. I say, oh, I, <laughs> I kind of learned how to do that. And, <laughs> you know, and I do incorporate some things as, you know, as they, they come up uh, into it. But my presentations, the focus of my presentations real, really hasn't changed much. And it really is about uh, conceptually uh, accepting and embracing the fact that as orchestral percussionists, or even in concert band or symphonic percussionists, that a lot of the time is going to be spent playing small handheld percussion accessories. And while not, you know, learning to play uh, the tambourine is not as difficult as is really as learning to play marimba well. Nevertheless, you need to spend some time doing it and have some focus and have a concept of what, what you want to achieve, what it should sound like. You got to think about what you're doing. I find it sometimes it's difficult to, to get young musicians away from the ink on the page. Stop worrying about the rhythm. Don't even look at it. You should know it. Let's talk about the music. Let's talk about the sound quality. Let's talk about the texture, the orchestration, what's going on. So I love to delve into the musical things. I mean, people are so, so proficient technically, and I can, I can offer much more talking about the music and not techniques. I talked to Keith Aleo a couple of years ago, and I know that he's a, he's someone who's like very very passionate about these instruments, and I think in the similar way that that you are, I would I would guess. And I know, I wonder if some of what you uh, what you espouse is is the, is hoping to see that particularly younger students take these things seriously. And it is very much, I think, it, it can be very much like a. Um, oh, you just need me to hit the triangle and I'm just going right. to like, you know, whatever right. angle that happens is fine. Right. Or I'm going right. to hit the bass drum and I'm just going to, you know, like, you know, all those things where you're, you actually, I mean, like you, I would assume that, that if you see someone who's pretty young, who's, who's like actually taking that seriously, like it, it's like, oh, this is great. Like, thank you for. Yeah, no, no, that, care. That, absolutely. And, you know. I, I usually start off a lot of times when I'm meeting with young students. My first question is, what should a triangle sound like? And we have a whole discussion about acoustics and, and physics and sound production and overtone resonance, harmonics, you know, uh, re reflection of sound. And, and so, uh, yeah, definitely it's, it's actually the misconception is that they're easy to do any yeah and every anybody can play the triangle poorly anybody <laughs> there aren't a lot of people that can take a bent piece of metal and make music and that's the that's that's where it's at you know and and if we remember as percussionists you know unlike some of my colleagues in an orchestra that that play one instrument i play the violin i play the clarinet I'm, I probably played over a hundred different instruments in my career. Now, now I'm, you know, I'm not a, a virtuoso on any of them, but I don't need to be. What mm -hmm. I need to do is be able to, to play the part, whether it's on a, a conga part or, or a marimba part or a snare drum or a tambourine part. So um, that's the, you know, once we, we really understand the difficulty of being percussionists is having all these different concepts and knowledge and techniques at our fingertips all the time, really, 
that's really hard. <laughs> and that's that's what I, t- I tell my violinist friends when they complain that I play less notes than them and I get paid more. So they don't like that. You know, so what I have to explain, you know, there's 40 of them and there's just a couple of me. Right. Yeah. This this one crash symbol part. That's it. Guess, that's guess, it. Who's, guess who's getting yelled at if that's if, if and, I miss and it. You, and you better not be wrong. You know, I, I heard somebody like explain being a uh, an orchestral percussionist. It ninety percent boredom, ten percent panic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always like that. Oh, that's accurate. I like that. Well, you know, when you prepare for a PASIC versus other types of clinics, are there ways that you take things because you know that you're in front of a an audience that's like percussionists, like for sure, that you do differently if you're maybe at a high school or other types of uh, clinics? Yeah. Well, the difficulty of at, at PASIC is you have a and, and the beauty of the show is you have a wide range of abilities and levels and ages mm-hmm. and so the difficulty is not to talk completely over the heads of the beginners but not talk so below some of the you know semi-professional serious students and even professionals that come so when i go to a school like a music conservatory i know if i walk into eastman and do a clinic i know they're all very proficient on certain things and i can start at a high level at pasic i i like to give everybody a little something to go away with if i if i could reach all the levels with just one thing one thought and one one idea, then I, then I, that would be a success. So it's much harder to do that. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I, so I always try and, and this is a lab. They, they asked me to do a lab, which I've never done before. And I really, I still am not clear on the difference between a lab and a master class. They said a lab is, is uh, more informal. I won't prearrange people to play pieces for me. I'll just, anybody in the audience want to come up who has trouble with, something come on and tell dr grover about it we'll we'll give you a prescription (laughs) so uh so it should be fun i'm looking forward to it i appreciate the difficulty that 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 could (laughs) yeah yeah comes into play i mean the kind of the fun thing with the lab is it sounds like you can just leave pockets of time to to know that there's going to be a lot of like hands-on oh absolutely and i i'm going to have them set a microphone up on the floor in front of the stage so if anyone wants to ask a question Come on up, ask the question. Um, you know, I, I've gone to a number of master classes and clinics over the years, and it really upsets me when a, a top-notch orchestral player will come in at an educational show where most of the attendees are younger students, and then they start giving a very narrowly focused presentation on a certain passage in a certain symphony. And where the kids really need is how do you play symbols? How do you, which, how do you hold these things? You know, what, what, how long do you let them ring? These basic things and not so much the, you know, how I play the, this passage in a particular piece. So sometimes sometimes going back to basics is a good thing, but I, I like to talk a lot more than play in, in these things. And I, I ask a lot of questions. I, I try and if nothing else, get people near his thinking you know, and, and, and they could research a lot of these things on their own. And there's a lot of material out there, but, you know, really back off and saying, you know, as percussionists, we walk into an, 
a room. We're usually in the back of the ensemble, if it's a large ensemble. And what are we doing there? Why are we there? And what are we bringing to the table that those other groups can't bring? We have that discussion, how we fit in and, you know, when to lead and when to follow. And, you know, well, you know, it's like saying, well, how loud is Forte? <laughs> right. It's so totally, it depends on the size of the group. It depends on the piece, the period, the acoustics, you know, and this is what, this is what, you know, I know in DCI and it's a, I never participated, but I know a lot of young players and they, you know, they have a very, very technically broken down system of playing in certain dynamics or certain heights. You know, so when I used to teach uh, in college um, early in my career, I would have to tell the kids coming in from DCI, forget everything you learned last summer. Just forget it. It does not apply to what I'm going to be working with you on. And not to say there's anything wrong with it. It has, it, it, it's really good and it has a place. But in my world, there's no absolutes like that. There's no right and wrong. There's better choices than others. But, you know, <laughs> you yeah. know. What's you know you're playing is you're playing uh, Tchaikovsky Romeo and Juliet symbols. It just says piatti, meaning plates in the time. It doesn't tell you what size, how thick, what sound, what. what Where's the know, cutoffs? You know, like yeah. How do you you know you... <laughs> cutoffs is that's a pet peeve of mine. And I tell progressors, composers of the Romantic and and Baroque and classical Romantic eras were really great at notating exactly when. A percussion instrument should be struck. They really sucked at notating how long that that note should sustain. Yes. So don't count on them to help you right. out at all. Now, how are we going to make that decision? And you know, yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That's yeah. a good, it's a good it's a good reminder of, um, like we've put so much thought into this because we've been doing it, and like the our field is more developed now. Right, and right. and whereas it was everything, you know, if in the, you know, up through maybe the 1870s, 1880s was was basically what they considered exotic, like a, just a new sound color. And it wasn't they right, hadn't developed. Right. The, oh, 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 well, like sound effects and yeah, yeah. open nine, the, the Janissary uh, instruments. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, you know. It's funny you say that because I have a, 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 a large collection of instruments, including a lot of very old cymbals, tambourines, and triangles, which I've collected. The triangles of the time of Mozart and Beethoven sound like you're hitting an iron bathtub. It's awful. Yeah. You know, we've developed the instruments. So the problem is the instruments today ring so long, which is nice. But that's not what they heard back in those days. So what do you do? Do you dampen it? Do you not, you know, you know, we get into this whole discussion about original instrumentation and sound color. Yeah. And and a lot of times in those days, the early orchestras, there were no real percussionists. If there was a bass drum part, a cellist would put his instrument down and grab a stick and play. You know, I mean, the, the art form today is so refined and it's, it's just, it's just a, a I can't think of any other instrument grouping that is that has changed and 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 really that has really come so far along other than percussion. Right. Let me think of the marimba alone. The range has increased, the techniques have gone crazy. I mean 
four mallets used to be a big deal. Now I'm seeing six and I stick around with two. Two's like <laughs> <laughs> right. The paycheck asked for two and now I'm going to play two. Thank you. It, you know, it pays the same amount of money to put yourself on that marimba part or sure. play the triangle part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very true. It's going to be um, informal. I, I'm hoping a lot of uh, uh, players will come with a lot of questions, with a lot of problems, you know, because I, I love to fix things. I mean, somebody, a lot of times people will have trouble with basic things like a finger roll. And I could fix that in 60 seconds. I know there's three things. I know what they're going to be doing wrong. And I could get them going, and you know, very quickly. So it's nice. Uh, I think it's just going to be an informal fun i'm hoping people will come and laugh and and learn something but have a good time as well because that's really what it's about no that that's awesome i had one more follow-up on it which is again thinking of of how you know the the wide breadth of of things you've done but is it is it do you see will you see like a contemporary of yours walk into a room and you're just like, oh, come on. Like, do you need to be here for this? Like, yeah. <laughs> you get like a nervous, like extra nervous, like somebody shows up like, really? No. <laughs> that happened once when Alan Abel walked in and sat in the front row. Now I'm thinking, <laughs> is he trying to bust me? Or is he really interested in what I have to say? It turned out he was so nice and gracious. He, he actually really wanted to hear what I had to say. But, it, it you know, wow, when that happens, it's, should I be really, really uh, – thankful that this giant in percussion came to hear me or yeah, yeah. is he really trying to throw me off here yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, were you like let's welcome our special guest alan abel to the yeah. <laughs> right 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 <laughs> you know what i i find Pasek such a great hang and such a great atmosphere that i i love it when i see people stick their head in. and you know people will come people i know and they'll stick their head in for five minutes and leave Vic Firth used to do that all the time. He, he'd he want to make sure I saw him, that he was there, but he would never stay long. And I don't blame him. You know, he was so busy. But it was nice that he stuck his head in. It's such a great atmosphere at that show and such a great hang. And I have not been since 2019. I, I didn't go the year they had it during COVID because I had some health concerns. I realized what I missed about it were the people, yeah. the family. With people I see once a year, colleagues, that's meeting the young students. It really, I'd always come out of that show it completely exhausted and totally energized. Same. Really, yeah. 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 It's a cool thing. Uh, and I will say, as because I went last year, that there were kind of two things that happened. One was, I, everyone was wearing a mask, which made right. it just kind of like it, it was like, okay, good. Everyone's like taking this as seriously as I was. And, and that's good. But yeah. the other thing is we all were just like, it's just so good to see everybody again. Right. 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 So you're going to feel that from a few years out. Right. 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 No, no. What, what's sad for me is this being the first year I'm going, I've lost a few colleagues and friends to COVID early on. You know, Al Abel, Al Abel and, and, and Ian Finkel. These are people who I've known for so long. And, but I think as a tribute to them, it's, it's important to continue to keep the tradition going and pass the torch to the next generation. It's just it's just such a great experience. If, 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 if people have not gone, I seriously recommend they check it out. So I'm going to go a little bit differently with you, Neil. I usually start with kind of now and then back up, but I actually want to start at the beginning for you. 
Okay. So where did you grow up? Um, I grew up on Long Island, New York, in where? Bel- a town called Belmore. Okay. Um, right I grew up on I grew up in Locust Valley. I know Locust Valley, sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I, my dad was a jazz musician. He played, he played saxophone and, and doubling on reeds and, and piano, conducted a big band. So there was always music in the house. And I wanted to play the drums. So gratefully, my parents agreed when I was nine to give, that I could take drum lessons. And I was very fortunate to have a drum teacher um, who was not only an incredible drum teacher, but he also motivated, he was a motivator. Now, you probably know Dom Famularo, I know who Dom is. Dom and I studied with the same teacher. Dom's a little older than me. And a lot of Dom's very positive attitude, you know, and and he he has this whole kind of motivational uh, slant. It came from our teacher, because he was like that. Who was the teacher's name? His name was Ronnie Benedict. And um, he was just, you know, to him, when you walked in there, sitting down in front of a snare drum was a privilege. And you had to earn that privilege and you had to practice and you had. But he did he did it by making you want to uh, get better and, and, and realizing I'm, I'm a member of this very exclusive guild of drummers here. And this is so I, I was really, a, a, you know, like like a lot of percussionists and drummers my age i'm 67 you know when i saw the beatles on ed sullivan this is a very familiar story and mm-hmm. every kid wanted to have a rock band and i wanted to play the drums uh so um i got the lessons and eventually got a drum kit and i had a little band in junior high school and in high school the band was bigger like a chicago with brass we were playing gigs already and uh but when i was i was 15 years old um, I ended up uh, befriending a, uh, a percussionist and a wonderful timpanist who had graduated from a local university, Hofstra University. Mm-hmm. And he encouraged me to come play with a group that of guys he would get together with. And he turned me on to, I was really a drum set player, but he, he introduced me to Stravinsky, Varez, Zappa, and I, I, I thought to myself, I got to I got to branch out here. So I started studying mallets and timpani and general percussion with a, 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 a veteran percussionist named Joseph Kastka. He was um, he had played in the NBC Symphony with Tuscanini and Radio City Music Hall. He was already fairly old when I studied with him. I was his last student. It's funny that his very first student was George Gaber, who was a professor at Indiana for a lot of years. And I was his last student. And he really, I had a lot of catching up to do on, on everything except snare drum. My snare drum playing was good, but mallets and timpani, I had a long, long road ahead until I could get into uh, college. And my first year, I wasn't ready for conservatory yet. I really, um, I ended up going to Florida State University in Tallahassee and studied with Bob McCormick, who was there at that time. And I spent that freshman year there preparing auditions for Eastman and Juilliard and New England Conservatory. And my sophomore year, I, I transferred to uh, New England Conservatory here in Boston to study with Vic Firth. You know, that time period, and I'm going to kind of go, we'll go back to the pop music part for a sec, because I'm curious, growing up in 60s and 70s, 
as someone who grew up in the eighties and nineties, it feels like that, that was, it feels like a golden era of music. Yeah. Like looking back, I, but I'm curious, like at the time, did it feel very exciting when all of the, when it like rock and roll is developing in the way it is? It, it did. And because I remember hearing, you know, I always liked the British invasion groups and mm-hmm. the American, the beach boys, but the Beatles, there was something about their, their compositions that just, uh, it was so different. And, and stuff. it was very exciting because if you could pick up a guitar or play a couple, three chords on a, on a, on an electric piano or a Farfisa organ, and you could just play boom, cha-cha boom, cha-cha boom, a, a rock beat. Yeah, yeah. You'd be working. We were playing Sweet Sixteens for like ten dollars. High junior high school dance. You know, there was no, there were no DJs. Right. We played the local movie theater once every couple of weeks in front of a, a horror movie. So it was very exciting. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, and just getting into that that part about the gigs, you know it's weird. It's a, one of those things to realize, like if like at that point, as you mentioned, there's no DJs and, and the, and so like, it was still all about live music. So oh, you yeah. had just tons of opportunities to, absolutely, to play. Absolutely. It, when I was 16, I was in a band. We played four weddings, bar mitzvahs every weekend, you know, and I remember we got paid $40 cash for a four hour gig, which, for me, it was great because my my friends were flipping hamburgers at McDonald's for a dollar an hour, and I'm playing the drums. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the week, and I have 160 dollars, and I'm playing music. Uh, you know, it was it was it was very you know, it was very cool. Also, if you played drums, you were kind of a cool right guy at school. You know, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. What was a lot of getting those gigs? Was a lot of that just. Like you would just be, someone would see you play and they'd be, it would just, everything was word of mouth basically. Yeah. Yeah. We'd play one sweet 16 and then we had little cards made up with the band name. We'd hand them out and the band name was on my bass drum head and uh, you'd get a call. Oh my, uh, somebody, they want us to do another gig. And, and uh, the, 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 but when it went to the weddings bar mitzvahs, there were, there were organized contractors that would contract, you know, we'd play in these big, catering halls that had five and six rooms would be five and six bands working right the same tunes the same gigs and what would happen we start trading players with the same office like you work with different people it was like going to a real job it was work it was work and there was plenty of it it was plenty yeah Yeah, it was cool that's awesome and and additionally i would imagine that probably set lists for what you all were playing were pretty similar there there wasn't that much music at that point well, the, the pop music was like uh, Burt Bacharach. Yeah. You know, the, uh, Ike and Tina Turner. Proud, I must have played Proud Mary a thousand times. <laughs> and um, the um, Righteous Brothers, Elvis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was much harder, I think. My, I, I had a lot of friends that played guitar and bass, you know, and they had to know the tunes in the, in the right keys. And, and, you know, I mean, I just needed to know the tempo and the song. So, uh and we also used to play a lot of Italian. It was an Italian wedding. We'd play traditional Italian. It was a Jewish wedding. You had to play all the Jewish stuff. You know, yeah. you, you you learn polkas. You learn all that stuff. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, the polkas. I, <laughs> I, I'm, my my. I have um, Italian and Slovak background. Uh, uh, so we went. So it was like all of the. You would have like the polka section, 
and you'd have kind of like maybe the mambo section of the of the thing and so yeah. all of these styles would just show up and then like the hokey pokey and then like celebration yeah, the, the gang or something you Absolutely. know like you know i had a friend who was a drummer and he always used to say to me you better hope you never get called to play a turkish wedding i said why not he said it's in 13 8 right <laughs> <laughs> oh, great don't call me for that yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's awesome what was it like, you know, in those days when you're playing all that much, what was it like to transport equipment and, and drums all around? Well, I was a teenager, so I had a Ludwig. I, my parents were very kind to get me a Ludwig kit, the same as Ringo had, except nice. mine was a different color. And the Zildjian, the cymbals. And we had fiber cases in those days. And I had a big trap case with wheels. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd pull up to the service entrance. I'd unload the stuff. Uh, park the car or when i was 16 my dad would drive me and drop me off very kindly uh but you know today i the last thing i'd ever do is carry a drum set (laughs) to my age (laughs) when i was 20 years old i was happy to do it it didn't seem so heavy right yeah (laughs) also the hardware was much lighter oh sure we didn't have double braced in fact i have all my my original ludwig kit i have i love the hardware it's very lightweight because we weren't hitting it so hard it wasn't uh, heavy metal, so so you could carry a trap case with three cymbal stands in it. Didn't kill you. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. When you st- when you get into the more orchestral side of the of the deal, are you noticing transference from instruments, or are you realizing this is actually a different? Te- I have to think differently about playing the orchestral instruments versus drum set. No, I. I, I that's a really interesting question. Um, I have friends and colleagues who studied, uh, who were not start, didn't start out as drummers. They started on percussion and, mm-hmm. and they're wonderful players. Um, I find having started out as a drummer and playing a lot of jazz in high school, I like to think way beyond the notes and the ink, you know, and sometimes to some people who are purists, they, they feel like I may take too many liberties now I don't go crazy, but like I will, I will, you know, I will use, you know, eight symbols in a concert. You know, I'm looking for different sound colors, and then if something's missing, um, if the orchestration is going, and all of a sudden there's no symbol crash, and every other measure has one, I would always look into it, and and if it's if it sounded like it should be there, I'd go to the conductor and saying, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Can I add this? And they say, well, let me hear it. And inevitably, when they'd hear it, most of the time, they'd get, I'd get the thumbs up. So I don't feel like I'm not as much a literalist of the ink. I don't want to feel a prisoner of what I think the composer wanted. I want to kind of take what the composer intended and make it kneel. I, I, I want it to be, I'd like to have an individual kind of sound and and especially when I play cymbals, I use a lot of unusual kind of um, techniques that are not really standard. But cymbals, you can get a lot of different sounds depending on how long you let the plates mate together and the angles and scraping and and, and things like that. Well, what, what, what's an example of one of these uh, unusual kneel techniques? I like sounds that are big and fat and thick and kind of what you might think is Germanic kind mm-hmm. of dark. So if it's a tambourine part that's loud, I'll, I'll use two tambourines and play them, hitting them together. Okay, yeah. And it's really very kind of uh, 
colorful and a bravura. Castanets, I'll almost always play handle castanets on top of machine castanets. Oh yeah. It sounds like a, a it sounds like a bevy of dancers. And when you think of the castanet, it's just an imported uh ethnic sound that and we don't even play it the right way anyway, you know. They, <laughs> so the flamenco dance. So um and with cymbals, a lot of I really give a lot of thought to when you the cymbals um meet in a flam how long they're together and they're they're vibrating against each other so that that, that middle meet in the in the sound i pra- i would practice with a metronome different <laughs> lengths of that so i can i have a lot of different colors in cymbals which i love playing cymbals you know and, and in triangles sometimes i've got a con- I've, I've conductors ask me uh, in one piece they see me use three different size triangles why you know and and I give them my explanations. Sometimes they're they're okay with it. Sometimes they prefer don't don't change it up. And then I would do what they ultimately what they want. Yeah. But I, but I you know we 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 really we're artists with an incredible palette of colors available to us, not just in instrument choices, but in techniques concept. Yeah. And to keep painting in the same three basic colors to me is like the most boring thing. I want to be excited. I want to hear something I haven't heard before, you know, within reason. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I just want to, I want to be a little different and, and, and approach it a little differently. So more like a friend of mine once said to me who studied with Alan Abel and she was a one, she's a wonderful player. Um, always started on keyboard percussion, doesn't play any drum set, doesn't improvise. Um, I also play jazz vibes. So I have a little, little bit of a uh, benefit there is, I, I, she says, you, you, you're, you're a jazz player who just learned how to play good percussion. I said, thank you. I, that's a compliment to me because <laughs> I do approach it more listening. I mean, than being stuck to the, the egg. Yeah. No, that, that, that's awesome. And I love, I love all of those different definitions. I was thinking you, I would imagine that in your head, if someone says, uh, if you, you know, you're working with a conductor and they say, I was like, which of the triangles do you want? And they're they're like, I just want you to play the triangle. And you're like, got it. You know, you're like, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, I remember one conductor once stopped and he he asked me if I had another triangle. And I, I just said kind of off the cuff, yeah, a couple dozen. And and he said to me, Don't be silly. And and in intermission, I went up to him. I said, "Come with me. I want to show you my locker." You're like, and when I opened up, you couldn't believe it. There were fifty in there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he thought I was crazy. And you're like, I was actually underselling it intentionally. Yeah, yeah there's actually more than I told you. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, but you know, I've, it's nice when a conductor actually notices that I've actually change something in the uh, Gunther Schuler, who was here in Boston for many years, who was the president of New England Conservatory, had such good hearing. I remember once in a concert in some Wagner piece, I just changed my bell mallets and he heard it and he came back at, after the concert and asked me about it. And I, I thought I was in trouble. I and he says, <laughs> no, no, I heard something different, had more of a spark, you know, so I like that. I like that. You had where for uh, undergrad? A New England Conservatory. To study with Vic? Yes. NEC, we used to refer to it as not exactly college. <laughs> NEC. Okay. Uh, how so? <laughs> well, it was a, it's a trade school. You know, I mean, 
it, it it's it's like going to plumbing school. You learn how to plum, you know, you learn how to unclog toilets. You learn how to play percussion. It, I, it's not really a university by any means. I mean, I actually I have to say what I did do was I took all my liberal arts classes at there used to be a school here called Boston State College and they had reciprocal agreements. Hmm. So I took all my classes, my liberal arts at Boston State College. So I took art history. And all different things. The real reason I did that was to meet different girls and and were in the conservatory, which actually was a was a good technique there, but um, it worked. But but I, I got to take classes that they didn't offer. You mm-hmm. know? They did they had very limited offerings in terms of uh, academics, and I really wanted to do some art history and uh, an entrepreneurship class and different things like that. When you start start studying with with Vic, is there anything that that you remember of of like He's like, oh, we need to get, we need to take care of this <laughs> immediately. Whether it was like basic technique or just approach or all of the above, maybe. Well, um, it was a, it was an incredible experience. First of all, every week I got to hear him play with the Boston Symphony. After my lesson, my my lesson was on Fridays, the last one before the afternoon concert, and that way I can walk with him into the backstage door and find an empty seat. When I first got there and I started working on his timpani technique book, which I still think is one of the best timpani books, and I, I worked up the etude number one. I, I played it so many times that I got it perfect. And I played it for him, and he said, that's very good. Let me play it for you. And when he got done playing, I thought, I don't know anything. <laughs> oh, my God, should I go home now? Right. No, but he just wanted me to hear. He 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 didn't as much – like to talk so much as much as demonstrate because he could play. By the time I got there, I had got my timpani chops and my, my uh, mallet chops together. I spent a year practicing like ridiculous because mm-hmm. I had catching up to do. And then when we had played snare drum for him, he basically said, let's put the snare drum away. He said, I, you know, I mean, we went over excerpts and things like that, but as far as technique and stuff like that, I had played drums for so long. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, was the the curriculum was it very much a um, you know just based on like you were, were were making you an orchestral percussionist? Yes. And that was and like yes, that was it. He didn't teach you how to play an audition. He taught you how to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And but you went through the Beethoven. I mean, yes, basically he taught you what he could do. Luckily, I, I mean, I used to play a lot of jazz, so I used to, I would, I took some uh, jazz uh, vibe lessons at Berkeley at that time from Ed Sandin, and then I was playing gigs on vibes, so I, I kept up my kind of jazz chops. Vic had a very regimented. Everybody did the same pieces. The juries, the same. You know, there was there was a very uh, structured uh, approach to it, which was good. Yeah. What was it? One that w- would there be a lot of turnover um, with students? No, there was. He had sixteen students. The only time there'd be turnover was when he'd throw somebody out, which was a rare occurrence. Or he was a tough teacher. He, you know, like I remember he handed me the Mio Marimba Concerto on a Friday, and I, I was going to play the first movement the next Friday, and he called me Tuesday morning at seven a.m. saying. Be here at eight o'clock. I'm I'm not going to be available on uh, Friday, so I want I want you to come in today. So I go in. He says, oh, "Let me let me hear the the mio." And I said, "Well, I really." And he stopped me. He said, "I want to hear the mio." And he was not happy that I couldn't play through the first movement. 
And a lot of people couldn't deal with that, that pressure. And his attitude was, if you can't take this pressure, then you better find out now because the pressure when you get out is going to be much greater. And I just learned to just, you know, do whatever I had to do to, to, to not only survive, but to thrive in that environment. And it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. He always used to say, talent got you this far. Perseverance is what's going to carry you from here. And I, that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that after that lesson, you, you, maybe the, you, the part of what you were learning was, oh, when he gives me something, I need to work on it immediately. Well, I, I bet I, that's right. I made sure I could at least get to the end of it. Even if I played half the notes wrong, just yeah. don't stop. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was tough. He was very tough. And he moved quickly and he expected a lot. But I mean, you're studying with one of the premier timpanists in the world. So he he had a right to expect that. And, and most of the students, you know, rose to the occasion and um, a couple a couple slithered through. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if you worked hard and you demonstrated to him that how serious you were, he would always help you at, when you got out, if you needed recommendations or, or any, he was very helpful to me. It comes down to work, you know, a lot of work. Yeah. What was the experience when, when you would go with him to, um, you know, to rehearsals or to concerts, <laughs> what did you, what were you picking up about being an orchestral percussionist from just watching the pros right in front of you? Well, what was interesting to me is I remember him telling me once like, you're in a studio playing timpani, right? And you're, let's say you're going over a Beethoven symphony and you're playing, but dynamics really don't mean that much because there's nothing to relate it to. So when we get in symphony hall, I noticed he gave me some lessons there and I'd play something for him and he'd go sit out in the hall and then he'd come in and he says, I was sitting halfway back and I couldn't hear any articulation. And I remember thinking, well, it sounds good to me here on stage, but you know, he said to me, it doesn't matter. What's important is that the audience is paying the comment and the conductor. So I learned how to work in different acoustic environments and to think more like, yeah, it might sound a little harsh right here, but this hall is so reverberant that when they get out there, I just want to make sure the articulation comes through. So it, it, was, um, it, was, it was getting my head out of the space I was in, getting out of my practice room head and getting into a performance head and saying, okay, what, what's important here? It's not, you know, it's not what I'm hearing right immediately at the instrument. It's really what's being uh, uh, heard outside. Yeah. I, it, it, when you, when you were explaining that story in my head, I just immediately went to, yeah, I don't care what, what you think it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, um, it's, the important thing is the conductor, what the conductor hears. And, you know, I, I learned in terms of, you know, he taught me that, you know, he, all these great timpanists are all great and they have different sticks and they have different drums, but what the setup they use works for them in that particular acoustic environment. Vic sticks sounded great in Symphony Hall, Boston. They didn't work on some drums and in other acoustic environments. So he basically, his philosophy was, I'm going to teach you what works for me and you're going to have to find what works for you. 
And, you know, as a freelancer, when I'm freelancing around, uh, you may have the same experience. It's hard because you're in so many different environments constantly. So the acoustic is constantly changing. You know, the feedback you're getting is changing because the reflection, the whole sound different. It's tough. You know, that's 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 when you're really working it, I find. And, you know, especially we'd be on tour with the Boston Pops doing one nighters and we'd play one night in a beautiful hall and the next night in a, in a hockey arena. And I remember thinking, gee, I sounded really good last night. What happened? <laughs> it sounds horrible. And you know, in a hockey arena, it's not going to sound good no matter what you do. True. So you just have to play and hope for the best. And, and and keep going. Where what happens after you finish studying with Vic? Well, when I was in NEC, um, uh, I spent three summers as a, a Boston Symphony Fellow at Tanglewood. So I was there all summer, and then I started filling in as an extra percussion when they needed it with the orchestra, which was great because not only was I playing with the Boston Symphony, but I was getting paid. Yeah, so it was nice. And when I got out, I, I I didn't intend to stay in Boston. I thought I'd go back to New York. And but you know, I really got to like Boston. When 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 you grow up in New York, as you know, you know you're a Yankee fan or a Met fan. You're not a Red Sox fan. That's true. true. I'm not a Bruins fan. You know, I'm a Rangers fan. It, it, it was really hard to adjust to certain things in Boston. Once I got used to it, and then I thought, you know what, I could go to New York and try and break in. Um, but I, I really don't know many people. I didn't go to Juilliard. I have a lot of connections here. I'm playing part-time with the symphony. I'm doing some shows. I'm playing with the opera. I'm super busy. Why would I leave? And it was close enough to New York that I still had family there that I could drive down, you know, every couple of months or once a month and see everybody. Yeah. So I, I went right from school. I, I, I was work. I was working. Actually, my senior year in school, they were going to fail me in the orchestra. Gunther Schuller was mad because I missed so many rehearsals. But I was playing with the symphony pretty <laughs> regularly. And he gave me a hard time. And I said, well, aren't you training me to hope that someday I can play over across the street? He yeah. says, no, I want you here. So I actually had to have Vic call him and set him straight. I don't know what Vic said to him, but it did the trick. Okay, that was like the the, the situation proved. <laughs> yeah, there was no problem after that. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's better that to not know what was said in those conversations. Yeah, no, no, no. no. So, so I, I ended up staying here, and you know, ended up teaching. I, I had, I used to teach, and then when I started my company, I'm not going anywhere because we got machinery, and you know, so, so I be, I kind of became a transplanted. A uh, New Yorker and, and now a New Englander. Yeah. Well, it, you know, when you're doing your your when you're working and studying under Vic, are you getting a lot of these? Is it are a lot of these gigs coming up because of Vic that you like? Yes. He's 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 suggesting you to play with yes. the opera or yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what would happen. Well, what happened was he recommended me to the personnel manager of the Boston Symphony, who happened to also contract for the ballet. So once I started working at the, Vic told me, you're going to fill in. So I filled in. He said, okay, I need you at the ballet for four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> sure. You know, and, and there were just a few people in Boston controlling all the work. So if you, they liked you, and, and I have to say, I made sure to always, my philosophy was playing is only half of it. I am working with people. I'm working for people. I must be prompt. 
Actually, I always want to be early, be set up, be helpful to my colleagues because they're the ones who are going to refer me to other gigs and do what I'm supposed to do. Don't ask too many questions of the conductor. Be prepared and make it uh, easy to work with me. And I know a lot of great players who I, who I went to school with and who are in Boston who play great, but they end up alienating everybody else, including the conductor, and they just disappear because no one wants to work with them. Now, that, that's something they don't teach you in school. They didn't have to teach it, but it's a le- an important lesson. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And not only that, it sounds like at an early age, you you were not only dependable, but it seemed like you were pretty organized if you're doing all of these different things. Yeah, well, I, I think I probably, in those days, they didn't have diagnoses, but I probably would have been diagnosed with ADD because I always had a lot of things going on. Uh-huh. I had trouble finishing stuff. So I came up with systems, which I still use today, to help me uh, just structure my day or structure my thoughts. Because if I'm left alone to my own devices, I'll start 10 new things and nothing will get done. <laughs> so, what, what are some of those structures? Well, I, I make a lot of lists. I, I use, uh, um, I have colored index cards and each color is a different priority. And I'm constantly reprioritizing things and looking at my calendar. It really helps me. And then I found... I find practicing on a snare drum pad is is very zen-like to me. So I have the same pad I had when I was nine, and every day of my life, well, with some a few exceptions, my honeymoon and things. Sure, but, yeah. You know, I'm playing some exercises out of stick control mm-hmm. in front of the TV, and I'm still. And for me, just doing it kind of focus centers me and focuses me. And it was funny because talking to my parents, my mom before she died, you know we talked about this and she says, yeah, you probably would have been diagnosed with ADD. She says, but once you started drum lessons, it got much better. I said, really, why do you say that? She goes, well, when you were able to practice, you just seem to really help focus you and help to, you know, help you throughout the rest of the day. So they said, we noticed when you didn't practice, you, you really kind of had a lot more issues with, with it. So yeah, it's kind of therapeutic. When you are when you're done and you're and you're staying in the area, is there anything that is full time, or you just have like a hundred different? <laughs> you have a ton of different small things that are making a career for you. Well, the pops I played regularly for a lot of years, and that was for me about twelve weeks. Okay. The ballet was became a tenured position, so uh, I was assistant timpanist. And that was that was another 16 to 18 weeks. So between those through, I'm at 30 weeks. Mm-hmm. And there was some teaching and other stuff, not to mention this was even before my business. In those days, um, like the Bolshoi Ballet would come to Boston for two weeks and they pick up, fill in, the, they bring the principals and fill in. So I'd play the Bolshoi for two weeks. And then um, there used to be the Ice Capades, which was an ice show. Oh, come. yeah. I do that. Then Johnny Mathis is in town for a week. I'd go play John. You know, I just love playing. In fact, I had one gig. I filled in for a, a guy, a group called um, uh, Los Maracos. And there's two guitar, Mexican guitars and a, and, and a maraca player in sombreros doing like parties. <laughs> and I, a guy called me once, you want to fill in on Saturday night. I said, what do I have to do? He said, just play maracas and we have a sombrero for you. <laughs> sure, I'll do, I'll do it. It was great. So, yeah, I, but, you know, freelancing, 
30 years ago, 40 years ago was if, if you were reliable and a good player, you'd work, you know, you know, and you're not, you're not, you're not sometimes doing the best gigs, but I just wanted to work. I mean, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make a living playing percussion. While that's happening, when does the business, what, what does it start? Why do you decide that this is something that you yeah. do? Well, it was a complete accident. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how it happened. <laughs> but um, in 1979, I was looking for a good triangle. So I, I was playing in the in the Boston Symphony. We're playing Scheherazade, and I'm playing triangle. You know, when you're the extra player, they give you the accessory parts. Yeah. They have an old – Vic handed me this triangle. I said, this is our prized old leady triangle. Don't lose it. And it's a big nine-inch triangle that had the most beautiful shimmer. And it, it really – astounded me to hear it i said what i wonder why this has so much shimmer and i i asked vic i asked a few of the people no one knew the answer they said but we never heard one like it so i was determined to figure it out at that time i had a former high school classmate that was at mit studying and i called him um, mit's massachusetts institute of technology across the river and i went over to see him i said i need you need to help me figure this out he says well let's go to the uh, my professor at the acoustics and vibrations lab, maybe he can help us. So we went to go see him. He took me, introduced me. And the first thing the professor asked me if I know, he says, you know, Randy Bowman. I said, Randy's a friend of mine. He plays flute in the symphony. He says, and the professor, Randy's my flute teacher. And he was a flutist. Amateur. So when I explained my delight, I said, I want to know why this sounds so rich. And he assigned a couple of students to it. They basically reverse engineered the triangle told me you know how to uh, duplicate it now you have to heat the metal and bend it at this end and i said now how the hell am i going to do this so at that time there was still blacksmiths in boston i found this old blacksmith i went to go see him i brought him this piece of paper i said and i brought the triangle i said this is what i want this is how to do it can you do it for me he said come back in a week so a week later i went to go see him I was kind of skeptical. I wrote a triangle clip and, and, a, and a beater just in case. And he had a triangle there. I put it on the clip. I hit it. Oh, my God. This is exactly the same. So I he wanted $20. I gave him $20. And I went. I took the triangle. Now, then, I don't know if it was the next day or a day or two later, I'm back at Symphony Hall playing Scheherazade. So the Boston Symphony triangles on a table and I don't pick it up and I take out my triangle and everybody's looking at me, the other guys, cause they see I'm not using that triangle and I hit the triangle and immediately they all can, where'd you get that? We, I, I said, well, I, I had a guy make it for me. You got to get one for me. And I said, no, 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 no. And I'm not going to no. Oh, you got to do it. You got it. So, okay. It was Arthur press who was the assistant Tiffinist, a friend of mine. I made one for Arthur. Then some colleagues in town heard of it and said, hey, can you get one to us? So I went back. I had the guy make five. But to show you how naive I was, I paid the guy $20, and then I sold them for $20. And I schlepped them back and forth a couple of times. So I was actually losing money. (laughs) You hadn't learned the the principles of business. I I, I didn't consider myself. The last thing I wanted to do was be in business. So so then I remember getting a call from Doug Howard, who had just gone to Dallas as principal percussion. He said, Neil, somebody said you're making – oh, yeah, Doug. (laughs) So – he said, uh, can you make one 
I, I, so I sent one to him. Mm-hmm. So then I had heard about this show called Pasek. It was just happened once. Yeah. And I, it was in Rochester. And I couldn't go. But then it was happening in New York. Oh, no, it was the third one. It was in Indianapolis. So I said, you know, I'm going to take 24 triangles with me and I'll charge $40. And if I can make $20 a triangle, I could pay for my flight in my hotel and go to this percussion show. So I had a little flyer printed up based on something I saw Fred Hinger do. And I went with my triangles and these these flyers. And in the first hour, I sold all 24 triangles. Now I'm thinking there's something here. I, I've kind of filling a gap, but I was so dumb. I sold all of them. I had nothing left and I had nothing to show for two days. So I had to find somebody and buy it back and promise them I'd give them one. (laughs) And I'm sitting there with this triangle. Now there's a lot of people who came by and said, Oh, how much is that? And I'd say $40 and they'd laugh. Are you crazy? $40. That'd be like today saying, you know, it's a hundred dollars, $120 you know, they laughed, but the people who were really serious, who could hear it, you know, appreciated it. So after that, I came back and I was trying to figure out what to do, whether I really want to get into this. And I get a call, my phone rings at home and and I hear this voice. Hello, Neil Grover. Yes. This is Harvey Vogel at Lone Star Percussion. Now, Lone Star had just started. I never... He said, I understand you're in the triangle business. And I said, no, I am not. He said, well, you are now. <laughs> and I tried to talk him out of it. And he went, so so then as it, it kind of grew in spite of me, I kind of felt like I took this little dog for a walk and now it's dragging me down the street and <laughs> I had no control. So I had to make a decision. I couldn't do, I couldn't spend much time at a growing a business and do what I was doing. I was teaching it through schools and freelancing. And I decided, well, I'm going to, I was taking a class at Harvard uh, in, in entrepreneurship. And I went to the professor after one of the classes, I said, you know, can I take you to lunch? I want, I, I need to pick your brain. So he said, sure. So we go to lunch and I'm explaining, I'm the percussionist and I play, I'm doing all this playing. And this is what happened with this triangle. I'm not sure what to do. And after I explained it all to him, he says, you know, Neil, I can help you with business issues. He says, but I think you need to find a shrink. You need to figure out what you want to do with your life. And I sat there. Really? <laughs> so uh, I thought about it. I, I didn't need to go see a shrink, but I thought about, you know, I need, I do need to figure out my life. Do I really want to go down this path? Because it, it will mean giving things up. Yeah. So I made this little uh, this little uh, kind of sheet where I had all the things I'm gradually going to stop doing with an arrow going down, and all the things I'm going to start doing with an arrow going up. So it equalized, mm-hmm. and I was able to let go of a lot of the like I do a lot of church gigs where you'd have to carry timpani up into the organ law, and I hated that. I hated that. So those are the first things to go. Then the chorus gigs. Then, you know, and, and and as the business grew, then I was able to leave the ballet, you know, because business was well doing well. And slowly I, I started doing less and less work where I was only really in the last maybe 10 years uh, just doing the Boston Pops work. No more symphony. And because I was really busy, the, the business, I actually got to really enjoy it as I grew into it and learned more and as, as I, I became more established. And I realized at that time, 
it was kind of like learning how to play because these I had to learn a lot of new skills that I didn't have. Um, and it was kind of a challenge and exciting. And whereas I found certain types of playing, like in December here, they, we would do like 42 nutcrackers in one month, you know, to double days. And, you know, it, yeah, it's a great piece of music. But after a couple of years of 42, yeah, yeah. the excitement's gone. Right. So, but then I get to the, I get to my office, think, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure this out, and it is a challenge here, and how do I do this? And so, it was just shifting the same challenges and and skills to just a different uh, genre in a way. That's the way I approached it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Okay, so when you decide, okay, I I have something, and I need to like, I need to actually like focus on it. What's the first thing you have to do? on the manufacturing side to kind of secure, okay, I have triangles. So what do I, how do I like, what's the first step to just that part? I ran it out of the basement of my house originally, Mm -hmm. and then it took over a good portion of the house. And then I (laughs) took over the house next door and we had walkie talkies and we were in a residential area. So big trucks would be coming and going. The neighbors would be complaining to the city. And I thought to myself, I got to get, we, we got to go to a commercial space. You know, I, ha- I had to figure all that out. I had a lot of help. I asked a lot of questions of people in the industry. Marty Cohen, who started Latin Percussion, was very helpful. Vic was helpful. You know, Steve Weiss, Harvey Vogel, people who had businesses helped help me along a lot. The thing about percussion manufacturing, you can't just look at it. I used to kid you can't look in an encyclopedia on how to make a triangle. Today, I'd say you really can't look on the Internet. For, I, maybe there is a a view to how to do it, but we had to basically figure out a lot of things, a lot of trial and error and a lot of mistakes. And I remember reading about Thomas Edison, a biography of Edison said he had more failures than successes. Yeah. By a lot. He never considered a failure, a failure. It was a way to learn what will work. Yeah. And I took that, you know, if I showed you a bin, we had about a hundred triangles that we had to scrap because there were problems and, and, you know, uh, wood blocks where the grooves were cut different ways. And, you know, but I always looked at that as R&D costs. So mm-hmm. we had to invest money up front. As long as we can get to a product we want to sell, we make that money back. Yeah. But that's what was exciting about it, that there's no way to, you know, there's there's no right way or wrong way to do it. Um, and And you have to figure it out. And your competitors aren't going to tell you. You know, you can't just I couldn't call up Ludwig and say, how do you guys how do you guys make these tambourines here? You know, you know, it's a, <laughs> well, at what point does does it evolve outside of just being the triangle being the instrument? You're focusing? well, the triangle was the first one in 1980. And believe it or not, the second was a three octave set of orchestra bells. Mm. I, I made about 20 sets. I have one. But I found the tuning of the bars was really so labor intensive and problematic. And at that time I was friendly with Bill Uhouse, who had started Fall Creek Marimbas. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 play, I showed him my glockenspiel and I said, Bill, I don't want to do this anymore. Here are the blueprints. If you want to do it, go ahead. You know, and he went forward with his glockenspiels because he's in that side of the business. But then there were mallets. We were the first ones to make these polyethylene mallets that Bob Becker used kind of, uh, you know, for rags and things like that. And then, uh, then tambourines. Tambourines came later. 
uh, and we're much more involved uh, because you're not only doing wood processing, you're dealing with skins and you're dealing with metal. So really all, all, all three skills there. Yeah. Uh, what, when you, when you get into the mallet portion, what, at that point, what is the, I, I guess for lack of a better word, what's the status of, of mallets at that point? I'll what, tell what, you, uh-huh. Mike Bolter had just started and I, I was in Chicago playing and I picked up a pair of his one of the first mallets at Frank's drum shop and Lee was just starting and I knew Lee from, I don't know how I knew him, but um, you know, Deegan stopped making mallets and the Musser Good Vibes, which were great. The original Good Vibes were great, made by a guy named Bill Marimba, believe it or not. And then he sold it to Ludwig and they changed it. Uh, so there wasn't a million people making mallets. It, they just weren't. I mean, we sold a lot of mallets. Ernie Lang had a line of mallets he'd sell. It's not like today. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, to show you the difference, back then you had a choice of two marimbas, a Deegan four octave or muscle four octave yamaha wasn't even in the game yet oh yeah and adams wasn't even thought of yet so you think about it today the choices you have it's astounding right and timpani you, you, you know you had ringer in germany you had ludwig making timpani and walter light uh you know um so but the mallet thing just has exploded and the mallets have exploded and and uh it's, and in fact, accessories have, have grown. You know, you have companies in accessories, some of the bigger companies that ignored them for all these years until they finally figured out there's a nice little market here. You know, we, we used to keep it quiet, as, as quiet as we can. We didn't want them to figure it out. They were, they were busy with drums and big stuff. I don't know the years of this, but when did Vic start making and selling his mallets? Well, Vic was making timpani mallets in the 60s. Okay. And when I was at NEC in 1974, he just was, he had a couple of snare drum sticks made by Wood Turner up in Canada, uh, the Bolero and the SD1. And he wanted to get into drum set sticks. So he had some made and he gave them to all the students, um, me and, uh, you, you know, was in my class was, um, he played on late night with David Letterman. I'm having a senior moment He's from South Africa. Anyway, he yeah. gave out the sticks mm-hmm. and they had funny names like the whacker, the chopper. You know, it was, it was kind of weird. And we all played drums. So we were playing them and the sticks all broke. Now the question was, who's going to tell them? <laughs> they suck. Uh-oh. So we went back and said, you had to do it, right? He, he, you know, he was learning too. So yeah. at that time, Regal Tip was huge and Promark. Mm-hmm. They were the big players. Vic was just starting at that time, but then he had a very quick learning curve. And then once he came out with the Steve Gadd stick, I remember that because he and Steve were friends and uh, it went crazy. I mean, those sticks sold a million. To his credit, from nothing started a very, very profitable and prestigious business, uh, you know, when he when he finally sold it. Was there anything, I'm curious, when you do add another instrument, is there, like, is it because you would be showcasing your triangles and someone would be like, do you make this? Yeah, that happened a lot. Okay. Um, I always look for things like that where I couldn't find something suitable. I, I didn't want to just, if somebody was making a really good, like wood blocks came later because there was some good wood. OneCraft made very good wood blocks, great wood blocks. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really want to duplicate things. We did a little differently, but 
Um, for instance, our tempo blocks. We never made tempo blocks. I used to have this friend in Florida, a company called Ohm Percussion, and they made these great blocks, but then they went out of business. So I called them. I said, are you going to make blocks anymore? He said, no. I said, can I buy the design from you? He says, well, it's not patented. You don't have to buy it. I said, you know, I don't want to just do it. I said, I'll, I'll pay you something, you know, that's fair. And then as long as you're okay with it. So I, I continued that. So the musical anvils was came same about because I was playing the fire uh, three-cornered hat and mm-hmm. the conductor wasn't happy with any of the pieces of pipe that my colleague was using. And the pipes kept rolling. I said, this is idiotic. <laughs> We're percussionists. We're here, you know, we shouldn't be dealing with rolling pipe. <laughs> so I figured out a way to come up with flat pieces of girder and, and tune them and get them to sound like an anvil. And those are the fun projects. Mm-hmm. Those are the fun projects. So yeah, we always try to like our, our chime mallets are still the only chime mallets with a flat handle. Mm. Well, there's a good reason for that. Cause when you're playing chimes, the alignment of that head is critical to the round tube. Yeah. Unlike a bell mallet, if it's turned, you know, 20 degrees, it's not going to matter. It's going to get the same sound. So little things like that, I've always tried to say, what what can we do that's different? Um, and um, so, yeah, a lot of things come back, oh, you guys make this. Unfortunately, a lot of people think, oh, people say, can you make me a tambourine that's 13 and 2 eighths inch thick? And I said, you know, theoretically we can, but we'll have to stop everything we're doing, change the machinery. So it will cost about $1,500. <laughs> oh, I, didn't, I just thought you could make one. You know, so people... When you whenever you make a product design change, if you're in production, it costs money. Yeah, you know. Do you find, or did you find that when you when you get more into these products and you're realizing, okay, if I I'm interested in making a better like a version that that's going to work for me. Um, were you someone who was was good with just like working with your hands? Like, were, yeah. were you creative that way? Yes, yes. As a kid, I used to I was into model rocketry. Mm building models with my brother and doing it in high school. I, there was a company called Dynaco where you could buy your own amplifier and preamp kits, Mm. wire it yourself with a tuner. And I I always like to build things. My grandfather was a jeweler and I used to sit, he used to let me sit on his lap at his bench. I used to like watch him make watches. And I always, and my other uncle was a diamond cutter and I'd watch him work and, I liked working with, I still like working with my hands. I mean, my, my wife kids me because she just does not understand how I can enjoy, you know, moving a faucet down in the basement from one side to the other. And, you know, I, I mean, I enjoy home improvement projects a lot. So yes, the answer is yes. I, I do like working with my hands. That's, that's awesome. Do you realize at some point you're like, okay, this is actually going to be the thing that people are going to know what I do. Like you're like I'm not going to be known yeah. as a player as much. I'm now like people are like, oh, you're the triangle guy, you're the, the tambourine yeah. guy. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, people are shocked sometimes in a passing show. You know, I'll give a clinic somewhere, and then if there's a jam session, I'll sit down and play a tune on drum. People are like, oh, I didn't know you could play drums. <laughs> yeah, I'm a percussionist. I mean, <laughs> but it's a funny. The funniest thing happened a number maybe five six years ago. We're at Pasic, and we have a nice exhibit there, and I have um, had people working for me there who are all percussionists. And I can hear a young woman ask a question to one of one of our guys. He said, oh, my teacher sent me to get a Grover tambourine, but I'm not sure which one model to get. Can you help me? He says, well, why don't you ask Neil Grover? He's standing right over there. And this is an earshot. And I hear her say, Neil Grover, is he still alive? Like she was really surprised by that. And I thought, 
to her, it's just this ancient company or something that's always been around. But to me, it's still something very new. Uh, yeah, so, yeah it, it is kind of odd to me that people assume just because you're in business, you can't be a good player. Right. I mean, look, Mike Balter's a great percussionist. Lee Stevens an incredible. I, I, I know, you know, and and. All I can really say, probably almost all. Well, Ron Samuels is a little different, but all uh, most of the small percussion manufacturers are players, also, which is nice because they actually use the prop. Right. Well, and it gets to your comment about they. I I would assume that all of them kind of were at a point where they're like, well, the equipment that exists now is not good enough, and we're interested in making it better. Right. And part of that was educating them why they should spend more money for a better quality instrument, because that was a big hurdle because, you know, the, the, our stuff costs more than the other stuff. Right. And, and, and especially with music educators who do, they really didn't, they were not percussionists. I, well, I, I, don't, I can't spend that out of my, I said, look, if you want your percussion section to really sound good, you know, it's, it's hard for kids to play on crappy equipment because they're having trouble sounding good on good equipment. Right. So to give them crappy equipment, I said, one band director, I couldn't play on this piece of crap. And you're expecting your students to. Right. So it was a lot of it was convincing uh, people that it's important. Yeah. And one way I did that by was reassuring them. I saying, look, here's my card. This is my telephone number. If you buy one of our products, we'll guarantee it for life. If you ever have a problem, you call me. My name's on it and I'll replace it. And once, because I knew it would last. I mean, occasionally things would happen and we'd replace it. But I thought, you know, try that with an instrument that's imported from China. See how far you get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's a great point about, I, I would assume that you would, you have long advocated for not just better equipment, but making the case that like a band program is better served by spending a large a larger amount of money than they would expect on a good triangle because that triangle is going to last. You you make right. it once and then you don't have to keep purchasing it. Right, as long as they take care of it. Right. And, you know, there's a, there was another benefit. I've always I've long been an advocate, and it's kind of there aren't many voices left that advocate for American manufacturing. Mm. Somebody accused me of being xenophobic, and I'm not xenophobic, but the reality is that public schools are funded by tax dollars. Right. When I, our company made money, we paid taxes to support uh, services like public school. Yep. I paid taxes, my employees paid taxes. When someone would buy a competitor's product from overseas, however, and they might save a little money up front, but they're cutting off their own livelihood because there's not going to be enough tax revenue. If there's nobody here employing people and making tax, the tax base is going to go down right. and they're going to feel pinches to their budget. I, the, the hard sell with that, it's a long-term view. you got to zoom out to 40,000 feet and look at the big picture, not just what's happening in the next year or two. Yeah. I have to say it's come a very, very long way um, from when I started. I, I was I was imagining like at the beginning, yeah. When you like you've been describing that story where you go to PASIC with your first with your twenty triangles, and people are like, "No, no, why? That's too much money." And then, but then they're all gone. <laughs> like right, right, clearly, right. I, I was shocked. I didn't know what to expect. Yeah, 
But, you know, what I realize is the people that come to this show are, are as passionate about it as I am. Right. So it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. it was funny. I I've been married 33 years. And my wife only came to Pasig once. She's a singer, professional singer and very successful. But she's heard me talk about it. And I come home with no voice. And and uh, so so one year it was in Orlando. So she came down with our young son. And I got him a badge to come in the exhibit hall. And they come in the exhibit hall. And, you know, it, it's it's pretty cacophonous in there. It's yeah. noisy. And so she walks over to the booth and she sees students asking me questions and asking me to sign a tambourine or a book. And she's standing there. And uh, when when it clears out, she says, I'm leaving. I said, we just got here. She goes, it's too noisy. I said, OK. She says, and I can't believe these people. She said, they actually respect you. She said, well, to, them, to them, I'm just not the guy who takes out the garbage on Wednesday. Right. Yes. So she, she really didn't understand the percussion thing at all. And that's fine by me. So she made her one, one appearance. And um, that's hilarious. That's, I, I thought it was going to be good. Like I thought, I, I, I thought that she was going to be like, wow, these people know, like they, they you appreciate know, you. And it, it went the complete opposite direction. You know, she and I have talked about it, and I sometimes accompany her. I play piano, mm-hmm. and but I realized if I want to stay married, I shouldn't accompany her because <laughs> my concept of rhythm and her concept of rhythm yeah. are a little different. And I'm wrong. She's right because she's a singer, take liberties, you know, and, and a good accompanist will go with that. I'm not a good accompanist. I'm awful. <laughs> And I, you know, I start thinking, oh, she, she hammered that triplet. That's too, that's too quick, you know. But I've learned not to do that because like being married, like <laughs> 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 staying married. Now, at what point do you get into the uh, write the you know writing book writing with um, you know, like uh, method books and things like yeah, that? Yeah. Well, my first book was really I had came out of studies I used to use with my own students. Um, I realized in that time, in like 1985 or so, a lot of the students who came to me from high school had a hard time, the transition from two mallets to four mallets. There wasn't a lot of material in those days. So I wrote out some um, arrangements of like classical little tunes and things like that, that started with two mallets and occasionally a third and they were graduated so they can get into it and not feel frustrated. And um, that, that became my first book for mallet primer. And that's done very well. Um, And then Gar Whaley, whose company published that book, asked me to uh, co-write a tambourine triangle and accessories book with Gar and um, Tony Cerrone, which we did. And then Gar wanted me to add something to another mallet book that he was writing on technique. So that that's kind of how that came about. But the 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 real book I'm I'm most proud of is a four mallet primer because a lot of people have had uh, very good things to say to me about it. That have, and it, it's not for the kids coming into conservatory who are already playing four mallets. It's for a kid at a university that's maybe a percussion minor or something who's taking lessons and has a hard enough time with two mallets, no less holding four and knowing which mallets to use and how to, how to do it. Gotcha. It was, so it was a lot of that was just out of your own teaching. Oh yeah. They were just arrangements. I wrote out when I realized at one point I had 20 of them. So I said, well, if, 
if I write a few more, maybe I can make a book out of it. And Gar Whaley was a friend of mine. And I called Gar. I said, you know, he had he had us a publishing company. I said, you know, I have this these sketches I use with my students to form Alec Prime. He said, send it to me. And he immediately liked it a lot. And he, he published it. And uh, and it was very exciting for me because I never had written anything. And it was, it was fun to actually see it being sold at PASIC or TMEA or or Steve Weiss. So how much at, at this point, how much playing do you still get to do? Right now, at this time, today, I'm playing very little percussion. Uh, it, it, it's funny because I, I consider myself uh, retired from orchestral playing because I was able to take my pension during COVID. Mm. Um, I have a pension through the Musicians Union, so I decided to take the pension. And um, I, I played 42 years with the Boston Pops, and I figured, you know, that's long enough. And I didn't want people to say, you know, he used to be a good player. <laughs> so, and I found myself, as you get older, you know, you start to get arthritis things, and, and things get harder. Strangely enough, I ended up, what I'm doing today is doing a lot of arranging, a little bit of conducting, and working with a Celtic violinist. So I travel with her as her music director. And we just, over COVID, we just worked on an album. Now, mind you, I know nothing about Celtic music, which makes it hilarious that I'm actually a music director. But I had to learn. So I'm working pretty much exclusively with her. She keeps me really busy. And uh, we're doing shows and touring. And um, we finished this album that's going to be released uh, early next year called Celtic Spells. And I, I wrote a lot of the arrangements of some traditional Irish stuff. And it's an orchestral record so we had it recorded in ireland um, during covid so it's it's fun i'm doing something really different than i'm used to doing so i'm, I'm once in a while i'll play a, if somebody calls me to play a gig i'll do it but i'm really not you know at this point i'd rather see young players and others who really need the work do it i, I kind of almost feel guilty if i take work because i don't need it and um other people do. So I tell people, I'm your emergency guy. If the night, if the six o'clock PM, it's Beethoven seven and the timpanist doesn't, is not going to show up and you need someone to call me, I'll come in and do it. Yeah. 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 That's a good, that's a good piece too for. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I had a ball on July 4th because I, I played fourth with the Boston Pops all those years. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine has a small orchestra out in the Western part of the state and his drum set player, crapped out on him the last minute he called me asking for names i said oh, i have one name for you neil grover and he said you don't want to do this do you it's a community orchestra i said what time is rehearsal <laughs> I and i had a ball i was playing drum set you know yeah that, that's that's awesome you know when covid does hit what i know that like kind of kind of across the board the manufacturing side yeah yeah really tough like what how did yeah. you get through well, for, fortuitously, I had been thinking about in 2018, I started thinking about you know, what's going to happen to the business. If something happened to me, mm -hmm. I didn't want the business to flounder. Mm -hmm. And my son, I have one son, and he's a pilot, has a great job. He's no interest in percussion. So there was nobody to pass it off to. So I asked the employees, I said, guys, I said, I went down and I said, um, I want you to buy the business from me. You guys will all be owners. I'll finance it. I'll work for you. I'll get it. But I want to see it go on. And you guys can own. And none of them really wanted to step up to the responsibility. 
it's a lot of stress, a lot of financial responsibility. So I started looking for a strategic partner to shepherd the company beyond my lifetime. And so luckily in 2019, I was able to secure a deal with a company called RBI Music. They were originally called Rhythm Band. And now RBI owns a lot of different music brands. So they own Toka Percussion, Boomwhackers, you know, those tubes, they own that, they own guitar companies. So they approached me and said, we're interested. And one of the most important things to me was that the company stays in the U.S. It doesn't have to be in Massachusetts. I just don't want it going overseas. And they agreed to move it to Texas to the headquarters. And they said, we'd like you to stay on as a consultant for so many years, which I love. I'm, I'm still involved. When COVID hit, of course, they were able to, uh, to navigate it, first of all, because they're a much bigger company. Mm-hmm. And they had to, um, you know, they got a decent amount of government support that way. Yeah. Sales dropped off like 70%. I mean, school sales were non-existent. Yeah. Uh, I'm thankful that I didn't go through that alone. I would have been flipping out. You know, it must have been very stressful. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, they they have a whole big company that was dealing with that. And they assured me, we're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't worry about it. You know, we're going to just put things on hold for a while. Uh, okay, fine. As long as I don't have to shoulder the responsibility of myself. Yeah. Happy. Yeah. I'm very well, lucky. That yeah, was like the timing is incredibly well, this is fortuitous. Thing. I make my life basically doing something that involves timing. <laughs> and here's the one thing that is just accidental timing. It's probably the best timing of my life. And it wasn't even planned that way. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of ironic. Yeah. All right, uh, Neil, I finished up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. All right, Neil, what's an issue? And take, well, you could take these one at a time. Percussion performance, uh, percussion education, percussion manufacturing. Something in all of those areas that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. Okay. Let's talk first about performance. Mm -hmm. It, It really drives me a little crazy when I see percussionists feeling compelled to warm up, quote, unquote, uh, cymbals the way they would a a large gong. Mm -hmm. I mean, I played a lot of cymbals over many years and used cymbals as big as 22s, and I never felt the need to warm warm them up. I I always felt if they're struck properly with a nice flam motion, you'll get instantaneous sound out of them. It, it, there's no delay the way there would be in a large tam-tam, 36-inch tam-tam or gong. So that uh, that's one thing about the cymbal playing that bothers me. The other thing, and I'm going to also talk about tambourine with, with cymbals, is when they make a nice crash and then they drop the cymbals so they're vertical, so they're horizontal, parallel to the floor, thinking they'll ring longer or something. Well, I hear a definite phase shift in the sound because the the symbol is vibrating in a certain mode, and when you rotate them ninety degrees, it goes. Shh. I hear a total change in phase, mm-hmm. and I, I don't like that. Tambourine, my biggest pet peeve is that. People, when they're playing tambourine, sometimes use their fingers uh, spread apart, striking the tambourine. Now, think about it. If it's two fingers, it's going to be a flam. Three fingers, it's going to be a rough. 
forfeit, you know. And, and so they're trying to play a very clean rhythm, yet there's no point to the uh, striking of the head. So I always tell them to bunch their fingers together the way you'd be like picking up some salt off the table or something like that, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the three things when it comes to performance. Education. And oh, I, can I can I ask you a follow-up yeah. on, on Tambourine Park? What are your um, suggestions for to play when, like if sometimes we'll turn it over to get, you know, to, for the, you know, contact on the wood right. part to right. get something that's that's more that's softer right and more just are you is that something you're favoring or would you rather something else no no i definitely play quite a bit on the rim with the head down with it on my knee or uh basically i only play it head down if i'm doing a very fast fist knee kind of a technique or if i'm playing a very soft uh or a difficult um passage with two two hands and then i place it on my knee with half the tambourine hanging off so something can move and and play it right on the rim but when doing that it's very important to make sure that both mallets i.e hands fingers are balanced so don't play with three fingers on your left hand and two fingers on the right you'll never be balanced so in education and i, I think there's people who might be upset with me for saying this, but I think a lot of young players want to specialize today. They play, you know, and it's nice to have a favorite instrument, timpani, marimba, xylophone, snare drum, drum set. But quite honestly and practically, if you are going to school and you want to be a professional player, you're not going to be able typically to choose what you're going to play. The The job is going to choose for you. And the more instruments you're open to playing without specialization, uh, the greater chance you have of making a living. And I hate to sound practical, but I'm going to be practical. This <laughs> is so important, especially if you come out of college today with debt, you got to pay it back. Uh, my philosophy always was be, I thought of myself as the country doctor you know, I could deliver a baby. I could, you know, do do a uh, uh, do an operation. I'm not the best at any one thing, but my strength is that I could do a lot of things. So I always would have work. And you know, sometimes a special specialization will will pick you if you happen to audition and win a timpani chair. Now you're a timpani specialist. You know, so. Um, and for the percussion section, we're not really specialists because we're rotating around. You know, every percussion section, somebody's going to play tambourine, everybody at one point, or triangle. Percussioners should keep a very open mind and not, not be particular about wanting to play just one instrument or one small segment of the percussion family. Gotcha. When, when you were playing... Uh, professionally for so many years with the symphony, uh, were there times when you would, when a piece would come up, maybe you've played it before, where you would say, I'm definitely playing particular part, or would you start to, like, depending on who else was in the section, would you say, no, no, you, I've already done this, like, I'm more than happy to take something else? Yeah, in Boston, my experience was be, we always try to put people in, areas of their strengths. Sure. 
So I played a lot of cymbals. I love playing cymbals. I, I have an extensive cymbal collection. People seem to like my cymbal playing. So quite often I would I would be playing the cymbal chair. Um, that said, the trend today, that's kind of an old school philo- philo- philosophy. Um, I have specialists on in particular areas um, or strengths, I should say. Today, it's a lot of rotation. What I don't like is sometimes a principal percussionist in, a, in an orchestra taking all the good parts, just whatever. And that's not, you're a section, you're supposed to work together. Yep. So yep. Um, I, for me, a lot of times I would like to have people um, have an opportunity to play the meaty parts and, and, and things like that. It's funny because I just got back from Florida playing with the Naples Philharmonic, filling in. They needed more percussionists. And they asked me what part I want to play on Daphnis. Uh, and 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 uh, it was an old Ravel program. And I, they want to give me the tambourine part, thinking it's Neil Grover. Give him the tambourine part. But yeah. I said, you know what? I'm so sick of playing tambourine. Please don't give me the tambourine part. Give me the cymbal part. Give me another part. And the guys were laughing because it was it was opposite of what they thought, you know. Yeah. So well, and on their on their own Grover tambourine, they're like, "This is weird. I'm playing a Grover tambourine. Neil Grover's right here." Yeah, yeah. And I also tell them too. I said, "Look, I'm a professional player first. Right. I'm a business owner second. Or I was a business owner. You know, there's a lot of great." colors of paints out there it doesn't have to be a grover paint there's great choices there's other things so i don't want them to feel that they have to or you know they should play what they want to play and i i appreciate it there's some very fine instruments made by our competitors and anybody in the industry who says ours are the only ones you should use is full of it you know i mean we're artists we we choose colors we should be free to do that and feel free to do that. Now, what about on the manufacturing side? You know, I've always been a big believer in made in America. I grew up in an era where that meant something that was quality. I recognize the fact that over a number of years, that American brand of quality faded. First in the auto industry, when Toyota came in, And now, you know, when you look at your iPhone, no electronics are made here. I get it. I get it. But when it comes to musical instruments, there's some really good instruments made overseas for sure. And the quality is really improved. But, you know, when somebody buys, whether it's a Grover product or another product made in the USA, we pay our employees, we pay taxes, the employees pay taxes. Those taxes go into a kitty in municipalities that help pay for school, education, public school. Part of it goes to music programs. When something's bought from a company overseas, the money goes overseas. It doesn't help support music programs in the schools. So as long as the products are competitive, the American products are competitive, whether it's ours or another one, I say, I I tell people, think about that. Think think about, you know, you want support of your music program. Think about where the money's flowing. And and so I, 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 I'm kind of a dying breed. And sometimes I feel like I'm on a soapbox preaching to nobody. Uh, but I'm a big believer. I, I hated to see 
the whole industry pretty much go overseas. Uh, at one time when I was growing up, Ludwig, Rogers, Slingeland, Musser, Deegan, these were brand American brands that were very high quality. I never would have thought in a million years that the Dutch would capture such a big part of this of the market. I mean, they do a great job. Their their engineering skills are strong, and they they basically ca- uh, capitalized on some of the American companies asleep. And typically what happens with a company, you have an entrepreneur or a founder like me or Bill Ludwig or Remo Belli or whomever. I don't mean to compare myself to those guys. They're giants. I'm just kind of a small person in in, in the industry. But as companies um, graduate to uh, be purchased by larger corporations and when the, when the founders are no longer involved, a lot of times it becomes more about the bottom line and the dollar than it is about the quality. Unfortunately, I'm so thrilled that I'm still involved with Grover Pro, even though I don't own the company, very active in it. And uh, I selected the company who bought the bought Grover Pro. I had a number of suitors, but specifically, they they did not want to move it offshore. And uh, they they believe in quality and they wanted me to be involved. So I, I, you know, that it bothers me to see things not made here anymore. All right. Some other questions not related. Um, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? No, but I'll tell you something funny that years ago, Vic came into to rehearsal I was playing and he says, he's telling me about this new TV show that he saw. And there's a character that's just like me. And I said, what's the name of the show? He said, Seinfeld. And and so he thought I was like George Costanza. <laughs> and when I watched the show, I was really kind of insulted by that. I mean, there are similarities. And actually, my wife has worked with him. She's an actress, so knows him very well. And I've met him. So, yeah, we, there's similarities, you know, in expressions and things. But it was me being more like him. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. All right. Um, What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Impractical? Do you still have your your, uh, orchestra tux? I do. I have three tuxes and tails. But I use the tails on Halloween. It's great. Oh, nice. My wife and I make each other on like Count Dracula. And I wear the tails. (laughs) It's it's fantastic. I tell the kids, I love to soak your blood. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I, I don't even know, you know. I'm not really a clothes guy, so I, it's, yeah. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Gotcha. Okay, what's your biggest kitchen mess up? My big, oh, one one time my wife was uh, traveling doing a show, and my son was about eight years old, and he I was going to make him uh, soft-boiled eggs for breakfast. He likes it. So I put a couple of eggs in a dish in the microwave and turned it on, and the eggs exploded. I didn't know you can't put eggs in a microwave. And it blew the door open. And there was crap all over the place. He loved it. He thought it was like the greatest thing ever. And I think, if I don't clean this up before your mother gets home, I'm toast. <laughs> that was my biggest kitchen kitchen faux pas. Uh, that's a good story, though. You're, I'm sure your son loves it. <laughs> oh, he, he still talks about it. He wants me, he wants me to redo it on, uh, on Thanksgiving, you know. <laughs> 
that's hilarious. All right. Um, what What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Okay, great movie. Probably my favorite movie of all time is Gone with the Wind. No oh, movie. Right. A score by Max Steiner. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's that and The Wizard of Oz, uh, two of the greatest movies ever made. And I like old movies. And there's some great new ones. And a terrible movie. Uh, the worst movie I, I ever saw um, was a movie um, Arlo Guthrie, the folk singer, starred in. Oh, is it about Alice's Restaurant? The one yeah, that about Alice's saw? Restaurant. Yeah, I yeah. saw that recently, and it's the it, it was the worst movie I've ever seen. It's 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 ac- ac- absolutely horrible. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! Do you have a? I'm curious. On the older movies, do you have a favorite either genre or actor actress that you like? They were your favorite. I like a lot of World War II uh, submarine mm-hmm. type movies. Uh, Hunt for Red October is one of my is oh, a great movie. Great one. Um, I I like some of the old John Wayne. The, 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 the best one is called the Cowboys with mm. John Wayne. John Williams wrote the score for that. And if, if you don't know it, watch the movie. It's a great score. Fantastic. Mm. Of course, all of John's, John was the music director at the pops for many years. So all of his stuff is just me is very special to me. Cause I know, I know him and incredible writing and um, you know, uh, you probably played on. Did you play on like a lot of those soundtracks? I played on Marty Indiana Jones and Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List. Um, uh, you know, he's just such a diverse musician and and, and so great. Um, anything that he's done the music to, I like. Uh, I really like. There's, um, but I, I Humphrey Bogart's one of my favorite. Uh, you know. Um, I like the old uh, Marilyn Monroe, Cary Grant comedies. Mm. And I both like old movies. So that's, we spend a lot of time on Turner classic. It's so, oh, I love that channel. It's great. It's so really, good. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's awesome. All right. Oh, actually, my favorite, my other favorite movie as a kid was a movie called it's a mad, 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 mad world. <laughs> yeah. I must've watched that a hundred times. It's got everybody, everybody in the world's in that movie. Yeah. Who was popular in the 60s. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I think there's even a scene where the, the three stooges are like holding – The three like, stooges, the firemen. Like a fire hose or something like they're that. Right, they're firemen. You know it. That's right. That's yeah. Right. yeah they, they had a cameo in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's like the longest comedy ever made. Like three and a half so hours. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Do you have a favorite book? A favorite book. Well, I, you know, this might be an odd choice, but there's a book called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a poetry book, and I find it very uh, spiritually deep. I, I like it a lot. I, I don't really read fiction. I read a lot of uh, I let history stuff, and I, I like a lot of technical books. I'm, I'm, one of my passions is uh, old British sports cars. So I'm reading tuning manuals and my, my wife thinks I'm, it's like, how, how could you read that? And to me, it's really interesting to read the history of the uh, MG motor company or, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's super. That's really cool. Um, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? India, mm. India, Thailand, both of those places. I've never been India particularly. I, I had dreams when I was young of studying tabla 
Because I heard Bob Becker play tabla, great tabla. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to go to India. Uh, it just never, never happened. But I, I'd like to go and visit the country and, and travel there. Nice. Well, and why Thailand? Well, also Thailand, I, I really enjoy gamelan and um, I'd like to, I love Thai food and I, I just like to, take in the culture and, and listen to some music. I like to hear some of the, some of the, um, these big gamelan groups. I'd like to, I'd like to experience that. Very cool. When you go back or when you've gone back to, to either Long Island or New York, um, is there a place like if you're visiting family, if, if they're still there, if, is there a place where you're like, before I see anybody, I'm getting this from this restaurant and then I'm, I can like maybe talk to you because I, but I need to get this food. Yeah. Well, there's nobody left there, but the first thing I'll do is, is get bagel and lox because you can't get good. Ba- I'm sorry, boss people. There are no good bagels in Massachusetts. It's a fact. Just swallow just, it. Just the way the Yankees are a better franchise. It's a fact. Yeah, exactly. You can, you can think what you think, but yeah. I'm telling you the truth. So yeah, I'll go right to any of those great bagel shops. And get a bagel cream cheese with locks on it, and I'm kind of in heaven. Yeah, <laughs> we, my it's funny. My a uh, few years ago, my wife and I had driven because uh, I'm in Missouri, but we my family's I have a lot of family still there, uh-huh. and we were we there was a, a local bagel place we get all our stuff from. And yeah. I think we I bought I think three dozen bagels. I left a dozen for my mom and like my family, and then we packed up like seven separate. You know, like baggies yeah, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. transport them, transport them halfway across the country back, and right. Oh, it's, it's, they say it's in the water. There's something in the water when they boil them. I don't. I I always thought, chief, only I knew how to make those kind of bagels, I'd be rich. I forget percussion. I'd open bagel shops. <laughs> You're right, exactly. <laughs> so different drummer bagels. You know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's. That's great. You you would have uh, uh you know you have tambourines, you have triangles, you have some mallets, books, and bagels, and bagels, bagels, bagels. Food. yeah, yes. yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, no, that that's a that's a good plan. I like that. So a couple more uh, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. I was playing a piece by George Crumb mm-hmm. called "Song Drones and Refrains of Death." Okay, it's two percussion and a big ensemble. And it's, you know, one of these giant scores. I'm sure you're familiar with this yeah. crump stuff. So we rehearsed, we rehearsed, rehearsed. And I remember I'm playing mallets and I'm hitting, and it was wild spot. I'm supposed to come around my setup to the front of the audience, uh, front of the group and yell at the audience, caballito negro, and then run back. It means black horse. Okay. So, you know, I'm playing, I turn the page, I run I run to the front and I scream, caballito negro. I'm very proud of myself. And I run back and I see the conductor shaking his head like this. And I turn two pages and I was way ahead of where it's supposed to be. So now I had to find where we were, which wasn't easy. Now I'm thinking, what do I do? Do I come back and do it again when I was really supposed to? Or do I just pretend I'm not going? So I came around the second time and I yelled it again. And then, of course, everybody playing knew I had turned two pages like they thought I had gone crazy yeah, and they yeah. were shuffling their feet. And I felt so, I said, Oh my God, how could I have done that? But you know, 
things happen to us in live performance. <laughs> I don't think anybody in the audience really knew, to be honest with you. Sure. <laughs> well, I have to wonder if if the, the time from from when it was the wrong till when it was correct, when you were like, was that like the longest, however long that was of like... Well, yeah, I'm look. I'm looking at the score, which is written in concentric circles. Yeah, yeah. Where the hell <laughs> are we? And the conductor has no idea how to cue. I, I found my way, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was scary. I mean, I, if, I'm sure my heart stopped, and I, you know, when I ran back and I see him shaking his head, and when I realized what I had done, my heart sank. I said, <laughs> but you know what? I don't think anybody really cared it, yeah. it, was, it was a big in the big performance scheme it didn't matter it was this piece you know you know so i mean it's it's not like i came in on a cymbal crash you know in in Mahler eight bars early or something like that i've never done anything that dumb yeah yeah <laughs> that's awesome i was thinking maybe you would you would have just like kept running out and doing that just just to make it a bit like after this <laughs> You know, there was one performance I'll never forget. The same group we were playing the burial folk songs and it, two percussion, and it starts out one of the movements with these hitting these uh, spring coils real loud with a mallet, both percussionists. Yeah. And I'm one of these people that checks the chord and has a backup chord in case I, I planned for disaster. Yeah. Well, my colleague never didn't, and I kept telling him, check the chord, check the chord. And so we both hit the first note, we both hit the spring coils and it's a fermata and his spring coils snapped, the cord snapped and it hit the stage and went zoom. It started rolling zoom, 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 and then crashed down into the pit. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. I, I, I missed half the movement playing. I couldn't stop. My stomach was hurting from laughing so hard, <laughs> you know, and, and, and afterwards, he, he fluffed it off. I said, well, that, that wasn't so good. And he just looked at me and said, well, it's not brain surgery. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is terrible. Yeah, things, we're percussionists. Things break. You know, things yeah. happen. Yes, they do. All right, Neil, last question. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? If I can deviate from art, okay. To watching the news and what's happening in the Ukraine, because my family's originally from the Ukraine. Oh. My grandparents came here from Odessa. And watching what's going on has really hit me hard because I thought if it wasn't for my grandparents leaving, I could be there. Yeah. And you know what, what's going on. So I've I've been trying to figure out what I could do if, other than, you know, um, donate money and try and, and be helpful. Uh, but it's, it's been a struggle for me to keep a positive attitude about the direction the world is going sure. because I see things happening and that really concern me. So I think it's, it's been doubly important for, for me to rely on music to get me through periods of stress and this kind of period I find throughout the darkness of what's happening in the world, just by playing something simple on the piano or sitting down this morning, I sat at the drum set and just wailed for a half an hour with brushes. And I felt so much better. All of a sudden, my, my faith was restored. I was able to ride the wings of music 
above and beyond knowing, you know, what's happening there is temporary. It's, it's bad, but we've been through bad things before and we'll get through it. But I wish I could tell you, I saw some piece of art that really blew my mind and made me so happy. But, but the good news is that I'm very lucky to have music as, as, as almost, almost a, a spiritual center in my life. No, no, almost it is a spiritual center of my life. So it's a, you know, it's able to, it's been able to uh, help me and support me and, and uh, back me up and get me through challenges that life throws at all of us at one time or another. It's very, we're very fortunate to have, have music in that way. That was a lot of fun. It's really great to get to know someone who's been in the industry and the business of percussion and percussion education and performance for so long, and they have a lot of great stories. Bonus points for not only the Long Island connection and the Boston Red Sox smack talk, which I'll always participate in, but also the shout out to the great Turner Classic Movies Network, a favorite channel in my household. Much thanks to Neil, and I look forward to keeping up with him and catching up with him in the very near future. This week's rave is a book, this time, and it is the 2016 memoir, Lab Girl, written by scientist Dr. Hope Jaren, available wherever books are sold. I cannot tell you where I came across this book many years ago. Maybe it was suggested through a website or something, but I know that at some point I bought it and thought, hey, this looks interesting, I should read it. I finally did, and it's great. The memoir is written by Hope Jaren, a geochemist and geobiologist who has studied and worked all over the world, and who has done a lot of work demystifying, for lack of a better word, the life of plants and trees. And, along the way, she journaled and took folks' advice to finally tell her story. In Lab Girl, Jaren runs through two separate threads. The memoir portions discuss how she got started as a scientist, the challenges of making that career happen, the difficulty she encountered making it in the science field as a woman, and the relationships she formed along the way. You also get to hear about what it takes to open and maintain a research lab, the ridiculous hours scientists have to keep to maintain their labs, how much money they have to chase to be able to fund and pay the folks that work for them, all of those things. And all of that was really great. Additionally, early on, one is introduced to the character of Bill, who joined Hope early on in her career as a research assistant. And the two of them get along like old friends or brother-sister and have amazing rapport together. But my favorite parts of the book were these short chapters where Jaren writes about plants, trees, and other members of the plant kingdom as if they are people with lives and agency. She makes clear that the quote-unquote thought process that allows a plant to thrive and how that organism goes about it and its inherent challenges of being stuck in one place for one's entire own life are things that are real battles for those organisms. It was incredibly fascinating, and I learned a lot reading about it. Though it's been out for a while, it's still well worth your time. 
Find and read Hope Jaren's Lab Girl. You will enjoy. And that's the show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.